Welcome to Stop Christian Nationalism, a podcast that confronts the growing movement of violent Christian extremists whose goal is to replace American democracy with a totalitarian government that is controlled by radical Christian preachers. The United States of America is an increasingly culturally diverse country, but Christian nationalists despise diversity. They seek to create a tyrannical government in which only Christians will be allowed to hold office and which will force all Americans to participate in acts of Christian worship. Over the last week, Christian nationalist anti-Semitism became more blatant than ever before. Kanye West announced that he was planning to wage DEFCON 3 violence against Jews then met with former President Donald Trump, who said in his own speech that American Jews should start giving him political support, quote, before it's too late, unquote. Then Christian nationalist Nick Fuentes launched into his own anti-Semitic tirade in which he declared that Jews should be kicked out of America because they believe that Jesus is dead and in hell. So don't tell me they're entitled to their religion. If their religion involves my Lord in hell, then they can get the f out of America, frankly. And so far as that's your belief, then you have no business being here. Certainly have no business being anywhere near the levers of power if you believe that. Because who do you serve if you don't serve Jesus Christ? You serve the devil. You serve Satan. Oh, I'm anti-Semitic? Yeah, whatever. You call me whatever you want. You hate Jesus. Your opinion doesn't matter to me. What Nick Fuentes expresses here is the hunger that drives the Christian nationalism of the Republican Party. Christian nationalists have no respect for any religion other than Christianity. When they demand that the federal government establish religion, they really only have Christianity in mind. As Nick Fuentes says, loudly and plainly, the Christian nationalists who now run the GOP want to ban all non-Christian religions. That ban would include Judaism, yes, but it would also include Islam and Hinduism. Christian nationalists believe that Wicca and paganism are demonic and must be prohibited. As for being an atheist, well, that's the worst of it all, as far as they see it. You simply wouldn't be allowed to abstain from being a Christian. The trouble is that once you add up all of the various forms of non-Christian identity in the United States, you get approximately 40% of the population. Nick Fuentes wants all of those people, well over 100 million of them, to just leave the United States. Think about it, where would they all go? This is where the Nazis began, forcing Jews to leave Germany or to live in their own separate communities while a final solution to their existence was being worked out. Is it a leap too far to think that Christian nationalists could seek to kill non-Christian Americans if they gain control of the US government? Well, let's consider a display that was shown at a political campaign rally seen this week. Over the weekend, Doug Mastriano, the Republican candidate for governor of Pennsylvania, 
attended the Pennsylvania leg of Reawaken America. That's a political campaign tour organized by Donald Trump's son, Eric Trump, and his former national security advisor, Mike Flynn. At that event, a gigantic graphic was displayed in the convention hall, featuring a prophecy by Mastriano ally and Christian nationalist prophet Julie Green, declaring that, quote, an angel of death is coming for them by year end, unquote. Underneath that threat were photographs of Democratic Party politicians, including the current president and vice president, the governor of California, U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, several other members of Congress, and others who aren't even exactly politicians like Bill Gates and Rachel Maddow. This was a list of the first group of people that Christian nationalists want to kill when they gain power. So yes, Christian nationalists are seeking death for their political opponents, and they seek that death in the name of Jesus. Now, what's essential to understand about Christian nationalism is that not all Christian nationalists are screaming death threats in the name of Jesus at the top of their lungs. Christian nationalism is an ideology that demands absolute power for Christianity in America, but this ideology is expressed at different volumes, in different tones. Some Christian nationalists, like Kanye West, Nick Fuentes, and the people at the Reawaken America tour, they scream their violent hate. Other Christian nationalists, however, promote the very same goals. The goal of absolute power for Christianity by any means necessary but they do so without screaming down complete doom upon their foes. An example of this is Mark Robinson, the Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina. He appeared at the American Renewal Project earlier this month, where he made it clear that he believes that the survival of the United States depends upon worship of the Christian God. Then we talked about how you need to stay, uh, uh, you need to make sure that the focus is God because America needs God and without God, there will be no more United States of America. I'm sorry. You get mad at that statement all you want to, you can twist it any kind of way you want to. But without the wisdom of Jesus Christ, without the knowledge of Jesus Christ, without the sharing of his word, Without the freedom of his word, the United States of America, as we know it, will no longer exist. Without God, Mark Robinson says, there will be no more United States of America. What does that do for people who don't believe in the Christian God? It shuts them right out of the process. Now, keep in mind that Mark Robinson wasn't speaking as a Christian preacher. He was invited to attend as the Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina. He's talking about America's dependence upon the Christian God in that context as a government official. Mark Robinson's view of politics in the United States is centered around his Christianity. He believes that Christianity defines the entire nation, whether you're Christian or not. 
He believes that non-Christians are a challenge to the authority of Christianity and thus to the American identity as a whole. So he describes his Christianity as if it's under siege. He told the crowd at the American Renewal Project this. You've got to be ready because they're going to come after you. The news media is going to come after you. The activists are going to come after you. That person who believes that a man can have a baby is going to come after you. And when they come after you, they're not going to come after you trying to get you to just be quiet. They are literally going to try to destroy you. Not only are they going to try to take your voice from you, they're going to try to take your church from you. They're going to try to take your business from you. They're going to try to take your family from you. They're going to try to take your friends from you. They are literally going to try to destroy you. And you had best be ready. Is Mark Robinson right? Are non-Christians coming after Christian politicians? Are Christian politicians having their families taken away from them? Well, let's look at the facts. I challenge you to find an instance of this ever taking place. It's simply not happening. More and more extremist Christian nationalist politicians are being blatant about the most cruel and violent fantasies of their religious lives, and they're not being held accountable. They're keeping their Republican Party support, and in many cases, they are winning final re-election to their seats in government. Nobody is taking their friends away. Nobody's taking their family away. If Christian nationalist politicians are losing family members and friends, it's only because their own extreme behavior is so alienating to people. Think about what Christian nationalists themselves have done. Christian nationalists stormed violently into the halls of the United States Congress, breaking into the U.S. Capitol building, wearing uh, masks over their faces, carrying handcuffs, pepper spray, knives, and nooses. They planted explosives next to the Democratic Party headquarters in Washington, D.C. They called for the execution of America's top elected leaders, there are no cases of equivalent violence against Christian political leaders by opponents of Christian nationalists. It simply hasn't happened. So what is Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson talking about? When he warns about people who are going to come after Christian nationalists, he's talking about criticism, simple criticism. He's saying that journalists will write articles about what Christian nationalist politicians say and do. He's talking about voters who dare to disagree with the actions of Christian nationalists. He's saying that politicians will be confronted by people who don't approve of their Christian nationalism. Christian nationalists, on the other hand, are actually trying to make same-sex marriage illegal, using the power of government to destroy those families, literally. They're actually trying to make Christianity the official government religion to make America a Christian nation where other religions are not permitted. Christian nationalists are not just pointing out 
other people's words and criticizing them. They're making death threats. They have stormed the U.S. Capitol building, violently attacking Capitol Hill police officers in an actual attempt to overthrow the federal government of the United States of America. But Christian nationalists, for their part, are merely dealing with criticism after they're caught saying outrageous things. They're merely being confronted with what they've actually done. Their supposed persecution is nothing more than people daring to disagree with them. That is what Mark Robinson means when he warns that the opponents of Christian nationalism will destroy you. This is not a symmetrical interaction. Christian nationalists have committed violent acts to overthrow American democracy, and they are threatening more. They are working to take away America's freedoms. In response, they're met with verbal criticism. And you know what? Criticism is what Christian nationalism should be met with. We should not respond to Christian nationalist violence and oppression with violence and suppression or oppression of our own. We should be prepared, however, for paranoid reactions to our criticism. Because Christian nationalists, they're used to being able to say and do anything in the name of their religion with impunity. They're used to living in a country where nobody ever criticizes what Christian leaders do. They're used to using Christianity as a justification for anything they want to do and getting away with it. Well, now that people are finally standing up and protesting against the excesses of uh, Christian nationalism, yeah, Christian leaders feel persecuted for that, just for being criticized. Their Christian privilege has been challenged, and they are determined to regain absolute power. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson made it clear that the extremes that Christian nationalists are going to in order to deal with political criticism are without bounds. He told the audience at the American Renewal Project that Christians should prepare to engage in violence to defend their power. Robinson said this, and you had best believe in the environment that we live in right now, if you are going to stand for what God believes in, you had best saddle up, lock and load, and get ready, because they are coming after you. Lock and load is a phrase that became popular after it was used by a character played by the actor John Wayne in the war movie Sands of Iwo Jima. Lock and load is an instruction to grab a gun, fill it with ammunition, and be prepared to fire that gun under command. When Mark Robinson told Christian nationalists to lock and load, he was instructing Christian nationalists to get their guns ready to fire on their political opponents. This call for political violence came from the Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, and its purpose was to defend Christian nationalism from criticism. We offer verbal criticism, like what you hear on this podcast, and Christian nationalist leaders view that as a justification for violent repression. 
Robinson was warning that our words will be met with their bullets. Now, you might argue that Mark Robinson's language was merely metaphorical. Well, the metaphor is bad enough, but we have reason to fear that it's quite literal because the history of Christian nationalist governments from the Christian Roman Empire to the Spanish Empire to Puritan colonies in North America and the Spanish fascists of the last century is a history of brutal violence in the name of Christianity. There was another preacher at that same conference, uh, the American Renewal Project event, who made it quite clear this month what is actually going on. Christian nationalism is not on the defensive. It's on the offensive. Here's what that preacher said. You need to get the picture here that the church is the one that's on the offensive here, not the one that's on the defensive. It is the gates of hell that are worried about how this is going to turn out. But the church prevails in the end. The church prevails in the end. As so often happens, the human critics of Christian nationalism were depicted by this preacher not as mere political opponents, but as demons from, quote, the gates of hell. Now, for the record, we are not from the gates of hell. We are not demons. We are just people who want to live in freedom, not under the tyranny of paranoid Christian preachers. But these preachers are seeking to expand their political power. And this same preacher explained that they are having a plan at this network, the American Renewal Project, to make Christian preachers the gatekeepers who decide who is allowed to run for political office and who is not. The preacher said this. Probably 90% of the pastors in this country are not called to run for public office. But they are the gatekeepers for those who will do that. And you'll be the ones that they come and talk to and ask to, for you to pray with them. Please take this piece of paper and begin to familiarize yourself with some of these top 10 questions. Because the first thing you want to say to them if they're interested in running for office is, can you tell the difference between a good idea and God's idea? So that's a huge difference, and they need to understand that from day one. Because if it's not God's idea, then it's not a good idea. But please understand what is in front of you is a, the first piece that we'd like to put in the hands of pastors who become the gatekeepers for the next generation of Christian citizens who will play a role in saving America. You know, I wish that this was obvious enough to people that I wouldn't have to point this out. But it is not. What this Christian preacher is proposing is actually illegal. It is illegal for churches to organize in partisan political campaigning. Um, not just to um, promote specific candidates, but also to control the partisan political apparatus. But that is exactly what this preacher is doing. Now, you may ask yourself, why is that illegal? Isn't that persecution of Christian churches? No, it's not. Actually, it's just the conditions of a special privilege that Christian churches are given. 
religious organizations can be free of having to pay taxes. Now, I don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. But Christian churches get to do that. Under just one condition, they get this special legal privilege. That condition is that they cannot be engaged in partisan political organization. And it's pretty easy to see why. I mean, all the Republican Party would have to do to uh, avoid paying taxes on its staff members, you know, things like that, and save themselves lots of money, uh, would be to claim that they are a church and that their political party is a church and therefore can't be taxed. That That's a, a recipe for corruption. So you can't do that as a church. But here we see that this American Renewal Project is specifically organizing specific political mechanisms for controlling the Republican Party, even deciding which of its candidates, which of its politicians are going to be allowed to run for political office. This is not something in the future. It's happening here and now. Christian preachers are being given a list of 10 questions that they're going to ask every person in their districts, in their areas who wants to run for public office from the local level on up to the federal government. And if those politicians do not answer correctly about their religious beliefs, if they don't uh, ascribe to specific Christian nationalist doctrines, they're not going to be given the support that they need to run for public office. That's not the way that our Constitution is supposed to work. It's supposed to be that there is no test for political office. That's in the Constitution itself, even before the First Amendment was approved. That was there. Why are they being so extreme? Why are they willing to break the law to get Christian control over all of American government from local offices on up to the national government? Well, it's because they feel the loss of followers in recent decades. Over the last 20 years, a lot of people have left Christianity and Christian preachers are panicking about it because that's who they depend upon for their money. If they don't have people coming to church and making donations, their income goes down. So Christian preachers are really worried about that because it's hitting their pocketbook. So, hey, Americans are turning away from Christianity in increasingly large numbers. But, you know, it's not secularists who are to blame for that. It's not scientists or just people who want to have separation of church and state who are turning people away from Christianity. Christianity is turning away its own believers by promoting a hateful and violent ideology that is not in accord with most Americans' values. These Christian nationalist preachers don't seem to be able to see that. So they see their declining church attendance, they see the empty pews, and they panic. Another preacher at this uh, Renew America, or American Renewal Project, talked about just this. It is ignorance of God's word that is something we are called to do something about. 
according to the American Bible Society, 26 million people in just a two-year period, 26 million people just ended their relationship with the Bible, their interaction with the Bible. They were shocked. They, they have known the numbers have been trending that direction for a long time. They just plummeted. The headline was, number of people interacting with the Bible has just dropped off the cliff. 26 million Americans just stopped interacting with God's Word. So, hey, yes, large numbers of Americans are choosing to walk away from Christianity, not because of a demonic conspiracy or secularist plots, but because they have seen American Christianity emphasize the most hateful and controlling aspects of Christian theology. They've left behind the Christian Bible, not out of indifference, but because they've read that book, the Christian Bible, and they see the harsh, judgmental, and violent ideology that is contained in its pages. Now, instead of considering that there might be a problem with their own religion that makes it drive so many people away, Christian nationalist preachers are doubling down in response to seeing Christians vol voluntarily leaving their religion. These preachers are beginning to suggest that Christianity should no longer be voluntary. They want to make Christianity compulsory, and they want to use the power of the U.S. federal government to force people back into church, making tithing donations that make Christian preachers more wealthy. It isn't just lay members of Christian congregations that the Christian nationalists want to target either. The same preacher who lamented how Americans are walking away from the Christian Bible, he blames progressive church leaders for failing to enforce the hardline demands of Christian nationalism. Here's what he said at that conference. I believe there are a whole lot of ministers that are in trouble with God for the message that they sent to the flock of God. I do actually hold America's ministers responsible for a lot. I like to take them all to the woodshed. They need a woodshed revival. Let's be clear about what this preacher's proposed woodshed revival would look like. Christian nationalism promotes an authoritarian model of parenting in which children who are disobedient are physically beaten until they accept the authority of their parents. This is what taking a child out to the woodshed means. The woodshed in Christian nationalist language is a place where parents punch, slap, and otherwise physically assault their own children in order to reestablish their power. Corporal punishment is a euphemism for this violence, but we can more plainly refer to it as torture of children. What this Christian nationalist preacher proposes is a new social order in America that's like that, where Christian nationalist leaders have the power, not over just children, but the power to arrest other Christian church leaders who are suspected of not being sufficiently extremist, haul them off to prison, and torture them until they agree to conform to hardline 
Christian nationalism. That is the woodshed revival that this preacher is talking about. With comments like these from Christian nationalist preachers at the American Renewal Project, you can see how easily the mid-level intensity of their demands can escalate into an extreme, loud, boisterous demand for total control over society, even to the point of using violence to achieve it. Christian nationalists are telling us what they want to do to America, and what they propose is not at all gentle. They want to take America out to the woodshed. But still, there are some Christian nationalist voices that continue to promote Christian nationalism using a soft voice. And it's easy sometimes to believe that this soft, gentle tone represents a kind and gentle version of Christianity that would never be violent. These Christian nationalist voices often suggest harsh judgment and religious power rather than declaring it in plain language. It's implied. An example of this kind of Christian nationalist voice came last week from Margaret Grun Kibben, who is the official governmental Christian chaplain of the U.S. House of Representatives. She gave a government-sponsored prayer at, at the beginning of Congress, uh, the opening of the day, last Friday, which was October 21st, praying in front of the U.S. House to the Christian God, Kibben declared this. Blessed are those who trust in you. Better off are they who rely on you and not on their own pride, who yield to your truth and do not turn to follow false gods. In just this brief portion of Kibben's government-established prayer, she offered two distinct criticisms of democracy while promoting the power of those who seek a Christian nationalist theocracy. First, Kibben urged members of Congress to trust in Christianity, to rely on Christianity, and to yield to Christianity. Kibben depicted the refusal to submit to Christianity as a sign of moral failing, of pride. In the next breath, Margaret Grun Kibben warned members of Congress not to, quote, follow false gods. Now remember, Margaret Grun Kibben is not just a volunteer preacher who shows up to give these sorts of official government prayers on her own time in an expression of generosity. Margaret Grun Kibben is paid a very large salary by the U.S. federal government to conduct these ritual prayers in Congress. She is a government official. Her position is in itself a blatant violation of the First Amendment's prohibition of congressional establishment of religion. The paid position of chaplain of the House of Representatives has always been occupied by Christian preachers. There has never, ever been a non-Christian religious leader who has been given the job of House chaplain. So you might ask who Margaret Grunkibben is to lecture 
the United States Congress against following false gods, but the answer is that Kibben has been given an official federal government job of preaching and embodying Christian nationalism at the highest levels of power. She is using that job to declare that Congress should submit to the Christian God and implying that the members of Congress should abandon any non-Christian religions that they may hold. And there are non-Christians in Congress. Think about what she's saying to them. With such power as the U.S. House chaplain holds, there ought to be some transparency, don't you think? If Margaret Grun Kibben had any respect for democracy, the idea of government by the people rather than government controlled by gods, well, she would hold a press conference at the very least after her government Christian prayers to explain herself and what she's saying. If Kibben felt accountable to the people of the United States, she would explain which gods the U.S. federal government believes are false. Which are false gods? And which gods the U.S. federal government believes to be true gods? We could demand accountability if she were to do that. Instead, Kibben makes her Christian nationalist prayers and then says nothing. Margaret Grun Kibben's Christian nationalist prayers are not just a problem for non-Christian Americans either. Christians are really fond of accusing other religions of worshiping false gods, but that's not going far enough for Christian nationalists. Christian nationalist preachers also often accuse other Christians of worshiping a false version of the Christian God. And you know what? Progressive Christians do that too. Remember that preacher who spoke just before North Carolina Lieutenant, Mark, uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson at the American Renewal Project this month? How he said, I believe there are a lot of ministers who are in trouble with God, with a message that they sent to the flock of God. This is the kind of thing you often hear from Christian preachers, talking about how wrong other Christian preachers are. So think about what's going to happen with that. Once we have a government official who has been granted the power to promote Christian nationalism within the U.S. federal government with daily proclamations of Christian power, we open our democracy up to consider which versions of Christianity are true and which are false, which are following false gods. Is that the kind of power that the U.S. federal government should have? House Chaplain Margaret Grun Kibben doesn't just give public Christian proclamations through prayer on behalf of the U.S. federal government, actually. She also holds private meetings with members of Congress to guide them into forms of Christian belief and behavior that she believes are proper. The American people deserve to know what's being said and done during these Christian nationalist meetings in Congress, don't you think? But to this date, Margaret Grun Kibben refuses to come clean. She will not share the content of those meetings. You know, the United States Constitution is really clear on this subject. This is not how Congress is supposed to operate. The Constitution declares that there shall be no religious test for any public office, but the position of chaplain of the U.S. House of Representatives comes at the very least with a test of the house chaplain's religious training. 
and with the de facto test of Christian identity. More broadly, Margaret Grun-Kibben's work in Congress undermines democracy by pushing our elected officials to listen less to the citizens of America in order to act in disobedience to the people of America and obedience to the Christian God. In a democracy, we are supposed to rely on each other. People are supposed to help people in a democratic society. People helping people. We are not supposed to have a government that is dependent on any god or any church. Margaret Grunkibben's prayer is antagonistic to democracy, asking for the replacement of people, uh, the, the trust in people, with a trust in a religion instead. Kibben's religion of Christianity is what she wants us to trust, rather than trusting the people. Even as she is appointed to this government position and paid a large salary with taxpayers' money, Kibben denigrates the idea that people can cooperate to govern themselves. She calls that idea pride, and she calls for members of Congress to abandon their belief in the people power of democracy, replacing it with reliance on Christianity. Chaplain Kibben says that she wants members of Congress to rely on the Christian God, but remember, the Christian God never actually shows up to any meetings or congressional hearings. It's Christian preachers like Margaret Grun Kibben and her allies who promote Christian nationalism, acting like unregistered lobbyists who actually show up to government meetings claiming to speak for their God, without any evidence of that, really. When Christians urge members of Congress to trust in the Christian God, what they really mean is that they want members of Congress to trust in and to obey Christian preachers. When Margaret Grun Kibben declares in front of the members of the U.S. House of Representatives that people should yield to the truth of the Christian God, she is instructing members of Congress to submit to the will of human Christian leaders. It is those Christian leaders, after all, who declare what the truth of the Christian God is. We should never forget that the supposed truth of Christianity comes with many strings attached. The truth of Christianity demands submission to absolute power rather than democracy. The truth of Christianity demands that one religion be placed over all others because all other religions are supposed to be false, with f false gods. We shouldn't be surprised when U.S. House Chaplain Margaret Grun Kibben takes to the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives to condemn non-Christian religions as having false gods, because the sort of person who would accept the job of U.S. House Chaplain this ethically compromised position in the U.S. federal government? Well, that's the kind of person who is likely to have an exaggerated sense of certainty about what is true and what is false. It takes a specific kind of Christian preacher to seek an official federal government job preaching Christianity or to lobby the federal government in, to change American Christian laws, to conform with Christian demands, rather than just working in a church. A preacher who, in, who engages in these kinds of activities, 
must by definition believe that it is appropriate for religious leaders to try to control the government or to use the government to promote their specific religious beliefs. Religious leaders who believe in the separation of church and state, they won't engage in these kinds of activities. And for this reason, there is a built-in bias in favor of Christian nationalism whenever Christianity is allowed to take any role of influence within the government. The growth of Christian nationalism as a power in the electoral politics of the United States is a consequence of the Christian nationalist ceremonial deism that is manifested in the power of U.S. House Chaplain Margaret Grun Kibben. It's partly because Christian preachers are given special power that other religious leaders are not given to speak with the voice of the government at all levels of the United States, that we see voters now choosing candidates for public office on the basis of their religion rather than on the basis of their abilities. One Christian nationalist voter explains that it's religion that is bringing him to support Donald Trump's apparent campaign to retake the White House in 2024. Uh, the biblical principles that Trump embraces is what, really, uh, what I really like about him. I've never heard another president invoke the name of God and Jesus more than I've heard uh, President Donald Trump, J. Trump. And that's the, the main thing for me is that he's embracing biblical principles and uh, follow the Bible and you can't go wrong. You follow the Bible and you can't go wrong. Is that true? Let's take a look at the historical record of that. Because Christian nationalism actually has a really long history. A history of over 1,500 years. And that is a history of persecuting non-Christians. What most advocates of Christian nationalism don't like to think about is that it's not just non-Christians that Christian nationalists persecute either. There's also Christian-on-Christian -Christian violence that has been a problem under every Christian nationalist government that has ever existed. Think about, for example, the English queen who was known as Bloody Mary. Yes, she burned people at the stake because they would not go along with her Roman Catholic religion. But it wasn't just her. People don't talk about this a lot, but Queen Elizabeth I and her Church of England also burned Catholics at the stake for failing to go along with their Protestant Church of England. Catholics were hunted down in their homes where they were forced to construct secret worship chambers just to try to follow their religious beliefs without being killed for it by their own government, by their own countrymen, by their own queen. It wasn't just Protestant against Catholic violence that was a problem either under these Christian nationalist regimes there was a Protestant versus Protestant civil war in England as well, with Puritans overthrowing the monarchy aligned with the Church of England. You know, you often hear it said that uh, Puritans came to North America setting up colonies here so that they could have religious freedom. The truth is that those Puritans left England 
because they had been having religious wars against other Englishmen, against English Christians who just disagreed with them about particular details of theology and religious practice. They had been trying, those Puritans, to impose their beliefs on everyone else in England. And at the moment that they got onto the Mayflower and came over to what is now the United States, to Massachusetts, well, they just happened to be on the losing side that year when a few of them decided to come on over and set up a colony. They didn't travel on the Mayflower to make a colony in Plymouth, Massachusetts, so that they could establish freedom of religion. No, precisely the opposite was true. They traveled on the Mayflower so that they could have their very own place to establish their very own version of Christian nationalism and force everyone there, everyone under their authority, to follow their kind of Christianity because they disagreed with the kind of Christianity that was forced on them through the Christian nationalism of their enemies. Both sides were denying freedom of religion. Those Puritans didn't want freedom of religion. They just wanted the power to impose their religion on others. We all learned in school that the Mayflower set sail in 1620. What those right-wing textbooks that are used in American schools with revisionist history, what they don't mention is that most Puritans actually remained in England, where they became so plentiful and powerful that they took over the entire country for a while after waging a nine-year-long war against their own countrymen until they seized control of Parliament in a coup d'etat that was remarkably similar to the January 6th insurrection last year. That English Civil War began just two decades after the Mayflower set off for North America. Now, unlike the January 6th mob, the Puritan Christian nationalists succeeded. They won the English Civil War. They took over Parliament and they cut the head off of the king and installed a military and religious dictatorship. When the Christian nationalist Puritans gained power, they instituted biblical laws, just like today's Christian nationalists say that they want to do. They banned drinking, they banned dancing, they banned women from wearing makeup. They made it illegal to play sports. They prohibited the theater. The Puritans in Parliament even banned Christmas. They said that it was too debauched a holiday and intolerably pagan in its roots. You might ask yourself how Christians could do this to other Christians. How could they torture and kill their fellow Christians just over simple differences of opinion about how to interpret the Christian Bible? Well, remember that preacher from the American Renewal Project this month, the one who said he wanted to take America's ministers out to the woodshed to beat them up, to have a woodshed revival. There we have in our own time a Christian preacher talking about how much he would like to physically attack other Christian preachers in order to force them to follow his interpretation of the Bible 
Imagine putting someone like that in power in the government. It's just one small step from there to sending an inquisition out, like the Spaniards did, out into the country to root out heretics, to torture and kill them. And it's another small step to Christians burning other Christians at the stake for the offense of disagreeing about Christian doctrines and practices. So there is a, a lot going on with Christian nationalism, even when it has a soft and gentle voice that leads rather quickly and rather easily to extreme, brutal behavior. And there's a long historical record of that. And we also see who is backing the Christian nationalists in this year's midterm elections, which will decide who controls Congress, who gets to set our laws. There are donations that are made to congressional candidates who are above board. If you and I write a check to a campaign, our name goes along with that. We are identified. But there's another kind of donation that is called a dark money donation. It's laundered through an organization that can hide its membership. And those political donations are practically unlimited. You could spend millions of dollars if you had that, if you were wealthy enough. Well, a recent support, a, a recent report, excuse me, from an organization called Open Secrets documents that 86% of spending that's being done to support Republican congressional campaigns this year comes from dark money donors. Donors who want their identities to remain secret. Wealthy donors. Only 55% of spending to support Democratic congressional campaigns this year comes from dark money donors. That's a really big difference. And it tells us something about who is supporting Christian nationalism. It isn't the grassroots. Financially, it's wealthy individuals who are supporting Christian nationalism. There's a big corruption that's at the heart of what's happening with the Christian nationalist surge. People who have a lot of money thinking that they can use this religious movement to promote their own bottom line, just like those Christian preachers who want more people in the pews, giving them donations every week. So we need to take a stand. We need to take action. And this week, I want to suggest that when we take action, we don't just look at the dramatic, large, extreme manifestations of Christian nationalism. We need to look at the soft, quiet, small manifestations of Christian nationalist ideology as well, because it's those manifestations that provide for the large-scale assaults against American democracy that Christian nationalism is seeking. If you think about this in terms of Nazi Germany, yes, there were the people at the top, like Adolf Hitler, but it wasn't just run by Adolf Hitler and his top lieutenants. Nazi Germany was maintained by the everyday actions of everyday people who went along with the Nazi leadership's crazy ideas. 
there's a myth about Nazi Germany, you know, that it was all very well organized, that they made the trains run on time. But the truth is, that's not what Nazi Germany was really like. At the top, Nazi leaders were doped up on drugs and out of touch with practical reality. And the infrastructure was struggling to maintain the extreme action of the Nazi party. Nazi Germany was able to cause the damage it did around the world because its ideology promoted extreme action without regard to whether that action could be sustained over time. The Nazis were actually incompetent in government. That's why they lost World War II. For a while, though, their incompetence was concealed by their extreme confidence. Does that remind you of anyone? Donald Trump, for example? The extreme actions of the Nazis had a terrible impact on the world. They could take place, however, only because ordinary Germans didn't take a stand against the madness. They went along with it, and they worked as hard as they could to keep that Nazi fever going for as long as it could. It's impossible to end individual human hatred, because hatred is a basic human emotion. But, you know, we can choose to reject policies of institutional large-scale hatred in our government. Christian nationalism always slides, beginning with gentle urgings to worship Jesus and then sliding into cruel hatred against non-Christians and other cultural minorities and then going into Christian versus Christian violence. That is because Christian nationalism is centered around distinguishing between true religion and false religion or as Margaret Grun Kibben puts it, true gods and false gods. With the urgency of cosmic superstition, Christian nationalism demands absolute obedience. And it put in the context of government, that means that uh, prohibitions will be there of everything other than the one true Christianity, with harsh punishment for anyone who refuses to comply with it. So for that reason, we need to confront Christian nationalism in all of its manifestations, not only when it screams with a loud voice, but when it also speaks softly, urging total submission with a gentle voice. Our democracy can have integrity only when people of all religions, when all people of no religions can have an equal voice in government. Christian nationalism seeks to impose the very opposite of that. And we're getting close to election day, just a couple of weeks to go. So we're going to continue to cover the Christian nationalism, the Christian nationalist movement that is surging in America that threatens to take both houses of Congress in just two weeks. And so, if you're listening to this I urge you to vote and to come back next week to listen to next week's podcast of Stop Christian Nationalism because we have a lot to talk about.